the relationship between the coach and the athlete is incredibly important and you really can't discount that which at the moment a lot of our talent id protocols do discount that they assume that if you hand the national coach the 20 best athletes in the country that all 20 of them will develop to the best of their potential Kia I'm Craig Harrison and welcome to the Athlete Development Show, a podcast dedicated to the healthy and happy development of the youth athlete. This podcast and our website, athletedevelopmentproject.com, will help you create an environment for your kids to thrive as an athlete and in life. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to post a review on iTunes. It will really help us to continue bringing you great content. My conversation today is with coach and sports scientist, Dr. Alex Roberts. Alex teaches at La Trobe University in Australia and conducts research focusing on skill acquisition, talent identification, and the science of coaching. In this conversation, Alex and I discuss her childhood, growing up as a high-achieving Aussie, her journey as an athlete in the NCAA system, and her fascinating PhD research that sheds new light on the role of the coach in talent identification, selection, and development. So, without further ado, Dr. Alex Roberts. Hey Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I'd love to start by asking you about your several interesting experiences with coaches. Yeah, I guess I've had a lot of those. Um, I guess sort of by way of background. um, So, you know, obviously been an athlete, done all of that, now in coach development. But um, I think probably the one you're referring to is that um, I actually was an elite athlete myself. I went to the US on a um, on a scholarship to a division one university as a rower. Um, and while I was there, basically I got recruited by a coach who was no longer there by the time I arrived at the university. Um, so yeah, she had recruited me to the college. Um, yeah, done all of the background work. We'd gotten to know each other pretty well, all that kind of thing. And then, um, yeah, by the time I got over there, she'd moved on to a new position, which meant that a new coach had come into her role. Um, And neither of us were really what the other was expecting. Um, So both he was not, um, I guess, used to me and my style um, and sort of the Australian system where I'd come from, my background and experiences as a rower. Um, And yeah, I wasn't really expecting a brand new coach to come in, um, particularly a male coach coming into a female sport can get kind of interesting, especially at that level. Um, but yeah, bottom line is that we just really didn't click, didn't get along. Um, and it actually ended up um, almost derailing my uh, rowing career itself because I just found that I was dreading going to training every morning because I just did not want to interact with this coach any more than I had to. Um, I'd be finding any excuse to get out of training with that coach and any excuse to train with other coaches and even if that meant going down a level, anything like that. Um, And so, yeah, I guess that 
was a very negative experience partially brought about by that lack of communication. Um, so when I went over there, I'd really only rode Skull before. So that's two oars. Um, but then going over to the US, they row primarily sweep, which is one oar. Um, again, the coach that recruited me, she knew that, um, didn't have a problem with it, was prepared to teach me the new rowing technique. It's really not that much different. Um, but when I got over there, this new coach didn't know that I hadn't rowed sweep before. He was expecting to be able to put me into the boat, obviously having recruited me from Australia, paid a lot of money to bring me over. He was expecting me to be able to just jump in and go with no adjustment periods and things like that. So yeah, just a lot of, a lot of miscommunication that yeah, ultimately ended up in stopping my rowing career. Um, so I think that's sort of what got me interested in coaching as as a science, um, I thought there had to be a better way to do it, that it wasn't just as simple as, you know, a bad coach and a good coach. There had to be ways to teach people about those things for coaches to learn how to be able to work with different athletes and that kind of thing. Those experiences that we have are, are, are so meaningful, aren't they? And it seems to me that this particular incident, uh, this particular experience really changed the way that you saw a lot of things. And so, so what, what was it about the process of recruiting you into the US and, and then putting you in front of a coach that you'd never met before that was most difficult to you? Like had, had you experienced coaches in the past that were challenging and you'd had, you'd had to find ways to, to relate to them? Uh, or was it this particular individual, his personality just was too far of a stretch for you uh, to manage? Yeah, um, probably, yeah, a little bit of both. So, you know, I've been an athlete my whole life, um, as most of us that are in this space have been, we all grew up playing sports, um, things like that. So I've played a lot of different sports growing up. Um, so had a lot of different coaches as a result from that. Um, definitely had difficult coaches. I've had coaches that other people just couldn't work with, but for some reason I could. Um, but yeah, so Again, I don't want to put the blame entirely on this coach in the US. There's definitely part of it was my problem. Um, but yeah, I really feel it was just, um, yeah, I guess really that failure of communication, failure to um, meet each other in the middle on expectations um, and just not giving each other a chance to warm up. So, you know, at the time I went over to the US, I was 18. I'd never left the country before. So my first, first time going overseas, um, really first time going on a plane for longer than an hour was packing up my whole life and moving to another country, to the other side of the world where I didn't know anyone. The only communication I'd had with anyone over there was this coach that was no longer at the university. Um, so yeah, as you know, a, young woman, I'm just getting very much thrown into the deep end, which I probably wasn't as prepared for as I should have been. But I also feel that, you know, as a coach in a collegiate system, you need to be aware that that's what's happening. When you're recruiting people from overseas, they are young people. They're typically no older than about 19. And most of them have never experienced anything like the level of training that's required, um, you know, the level of expectation, being able to balance university life and athlete life. Um, those are the kind of things that I really struggled with that I didn't find any support from the coaches uh, yeah, in adjusting to that way of life. Um, so, yeah, I definitely made some mistakes along the way, but 
as a coach, I feel like that's something that they really should have stepped up and yeah, helped through those transitions. And then, yeah, if we still didn't get along and it still didn't work out, that's fine. You're always going to have personality clashes, but as a coach, you need to find a way to work with all of your athletes. You moved on to some coaching yourself. Uh, if I understand correctly, you've coached in sports that you haven't even played. Uh, and, and that's quite a, an interesting idea. So I'd love to explore that. But before we go there, what did this particular interaction, this experience with this, this US coach teach you uh, that has informed your coaching uh, ever since? Yeah, so um, it really taught me that, as I sort of touched on earlier, coaches need to find a way to work with as many athletes as possible. Um, But it also taught me that there is an inherent subjectivity in coaching, and that's really okay. Um, Coaches need to be able to work with athletes that they mesh with. They need to have sort of subjectivity, some subjectivity and sort of leeway in their selection of athletes and things like that. Because if they don't, we're just going to wind up in this kind of situation. Athletes get burnt out, athletes get injured, um, coaches end up taking the brunt of the blame when really nobody was necessarily at fault for those things happening. It just means that, um, yeah, especially at that higher level, we do need to give some credence to that idea of, yeah, coaches having a subjective say in selections rather than just basing it purely on, you know, times or measurements, height, weight, games won, those kind of things. Yeah, I'd love to get into that idea of subjectivity. And I know that it's a big theme of your research. Just go a little bit deeper in terms of what you actually mean by subjectivity, I think would be a great place to start. So I guess we all know that everybody has opinions, everybody has their own experiences. The way that we interpret life is very much a factor of, again, our own experiences, um, where we've been, who we've met, how we grew up, all those kinds of things. Um, So coaches and indeed everybody, we interpret through that lens. So if I've only ever as a coach, I've only ever worked with athletes who are tall. It's going to be very difficult for me to turn around and then work with an athlete who is short because I just don't have that experience. I don't have that skill set necessarily, which means when it comes to picking athletes, I'm probably going to prioritize picking one who's taller because that's my experience. That's my skill set. Again, that's that subjectivity coming in. I'm not necessarily wrong or right, in that selection. And yeah, I don't think we really should bother getting into the whole right or wrong in talent ID, which we'll talk about a bit later, I'm sure. But um, yeah, everybody has their own experiences and that really colors the way we interpret the world. So I guess that's just what I mean by subjectivity there. Yeah, thanks, Alex. I'd love to go back to some of the times that you had in your childhood and, and what colored your subjectivity? My experience growing up, you know, I started gymnastics when I was, you know, two or three. I started playing hockey at about the same age. Um, And I also started playing violin and clarinet at that age as well. Um, So I've had always had a really broad range of experiences, both in and out of sport. Um, 
yet continuing to grow up, I, you know, I played water polo, I played hockey, I played chess, I did rowing, I played netball, basketball, you name it, I've probably played the sport in some way. Um, and same thing, I continued to play a lot of instruments. Um, I reached a very high level in chess. I was doing, um, you know, doing schoolwork. I ended up doing actually 12 subjects during year 12, which in Australia is double what we would normally do. That was mostly a factor of me not being able to decide what I wanted to do. So I just wanted to do everything so that I didn't miss out, which again, common line throughout my life is taking on far too much because I definitely have a case of FOMO. <laughs> um, so I think those experiences really have colored me um, in that I basically, I believe anybody can do anything really if they put their mind to it, if they've got the right people and support around them. Um, yeah, there's no reason why people can't, especially kids can't do sport and music and schoolwork and drama and whatever else they might want to do. There's really no need to specialize, um, especially within sport. It's definitely colored my opinion in that I believe students and athletes should do a lot of different sports. We really shouldn't be pigeonholing people early on into being a swimmer or a rugby player or whatever that might be. Um, I think there's a really valuable place to yeah, ha have those diverse experiences, to be part of an individual sport and a team sport, to do yeah, sport and an art, whether that's music, drama, art, whatever it might be. Um, and that it is possible to do a high level of whatever activity you, you like and still do well at school. Um, so again, that was my experience. So that's something that I definitely take into my coaching. I find it, and I know this is one of my personal biases, I find it very difficult when athletes come in and say, oh, you know, like I need to skip training because I need to do my homework. And I kind of sit there going, you need to find the time elsewhere. You can do both. And that's not from a place of sport is more important. That's from a place of, you know, working on time management. Um, you know, if you're going to play on a sports team, you need to attend training. You also need to find the time to do homework. I'm not saying you shouldn't be doing your homework. I'm just saying that, um, yeah, it is possible to find the time to do it all. You don't need to be sacrificing one for the other at any particular point. It is possible to do it all, um, which again, I find, yeah, from my own perspective, I was able to do that. So I struggle when other people can't do that. Um, but I know that that's something that not everybody is fortunate enough to be in the position that they are able to do these different activities. Um, so what yeah, coaching you? in Sorry. Sorry for interrupting. I just want to jump in. Yeah. I'm really interested in, you know, what allowed you to, to do these multiple different endeavors when you were growing up. What, what was it about your support system or you as an individual, you think allowed you to actually not only participate in a number of different things, but also reach a high level of success? Um, I think a big part of it was basically starting early. Um, I've never, I've never known not doing a multitude of activities. You know, as I said, when I was three, I started playing hockey and doing gymnastics, you know, like most Australians, I could also swim before I could walk. So I was in swim lessons through that whole time. Um, and then, yeah, I started learning music at the same time. So even before I was in school, I was doing these multiple activities in different areas. 
Um, so I think that really helped was just that that's all I've ever known. It wasn't really, there wasn't really an alternative. Um, I definitely had a really strong support system, which was very important. My parents were obviously very supportive um, and we were fortunate enough to be in a position where I could do all these different activities. Um, that being said, my mum is a music teacher. And so that's where all the music came in. Um, she never taught me herself always very cautious about making sure that mum didn't teach the kids because everybody knows kids don't listen to their parents when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, she, it was very important to her that we did music. Um, and she was also the athlete in the family growing up. Um, she also did a lot of different sports and she thought it was very important to our development to make sure that, you know, so I have two siblings, a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, it was very important that we also had those diverse sporting experiences. It didn't matter what sport we did or what instrument we wanted to play, what activity we wanted to do. It was important that um, we were doing something, um, that they were sort of different activities. So it was very important that we did an individual sport and a team sport. Um, if we were playing uh, instruments, it was important that we learned, learned how to do sort of more soloist instruments, things like, you know, piano, violin, but then also orchestral things. So we had to play in an orchestra or be in a choir, something like that, so that we could learn both independence, that autonomy, self-sufficiency, but then also learning how to work in a team, work in those larger groups, um, both as a leader and as a follower in those groups. Um, yeah, so I really think that's sort of where it came from. Um, as I said earlier, a lot of FOMO. So going through school, if somebody else was doing a sport, I wanted to do it too because I didn't want to miss out on the trips or playing together on weekends or training together with my friends after school. Um, a really good example of that was that I, did, I used to do classical ballet dancing. I hated it, absolutely hated it. It was not at all my area. Um, but all my friends did jazz dancing. So I swapped from ballet to jazz, still hated it, but wanted to do it because my friends were there. Um, so yeah, very big FOMO, which has been a huge contributor to probably my, yeah, excessive activities throughout yeah. life. That's a big pull, isn't it? Like I, I see a lot of that happening in the athletes here in New Zealand and the ones that I work with of friends are doing particular things or the groups that are, they want to associate are doing particular things. And, and the draw is more about the relatedness as opposed to necessarily the, the passion for the activity itself. It's a real challenge. And obviously that coincides with the stage of development that they're going through. It seems to me like your, was your mum quite intentional about these things? Uh, it, it, no, let's do some music, let's do some sport, let's make sure that you, you get an opportunity to be in an, in an individual and in a team sport. Looking back, it, was she quite intentional about the experiences that she wished for you? Yeah, looking back at the time, I don't think that really registered. Um, but yes, now that I stand there and look back at it, most definitely. As I said, I did ballet for a while growing up. Um, as I said, I hated it, but I did it for probably eight or nine years because I was always told, you know, yeah, you can quit ballet, but only if you find something else you're going to do in that time. Um, and it needs to be a sport related thing. 
and same thing, you know, a couple of times, you know, I've played hockey my whole life, but I definitely went through a period at sort of, you know, 11, 12, 13, that I just didn't want to do that anymore. It was, I was sick of it, all that kind of thing. And again, the response was, that's fine. You know, you've got to finish out the season. You made a commitment to your team. You can finish out the season, but next season, if you want to play soccer, netball, basketball, that's completely fine. Um, and so I was always given, as I said, the option to do sort of whatever I wanted to, but the option was never there to not do an activity or not finish out my commitment um, for the year. So again, dancing, you don't have to continue next year, but you do have to keep doing it this year through to the end of year concert because the rest of your dance class is relying on you to be in the concert, be in the choreography as it's already been done. Same thing with our team sports. Um, so yeah, as I said, at the time, it was never explicit. Um, but yeah, looking back, there was a very, very deliberate, um, yeah, molding of our experiences so that growing up, I could pick which way I wanted to go with things. I could pick whatever sport I wanted to do um, and what level I wanted to pursue that to. Um, I could, yeah, could have gone into music if I wanted to, all those kind of things. Obviously ended up following the sports track. Um, but yeah, the, the opportunities were there so that I could explore my interests and figure out really what I wanted to do. It wasn't a matter of doing sport because that's all I'd ever known. Um, it was the option of choosing sport because that's what I wanted to do. That's where, you know, my passion and my interest lay. So what was it about sport that really fired you up, Alex? And why, why choose sport as opposed to, to music, for example? Um, to be perfectly honest, um, I chose sport because, you know, coming out of high school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, like most people ended up going into sports science just because that's something that, you know, kind of like sport, kind of like science. Why not? I'll go do that. There was definitely some of that sort of teenage angst. I don't want to do music because my mom's a music teacher and I don't want to, you know, do the same thing that she's doing and she's done. Um and then when trying to decide uh, as to whether I wanted to sort of pursue my athletics, so as an athlete, so going overseas to the US, that kind of thing, rather than staying in, um, staying in Australia or pursuing my music career. Again, I was, I was a very good musician. I probably could have done that professionally if I'd wanted to. Um, big part of my brain was sitting there going, well, as an athlete, you've got a limited lifespan. You can only do that for so many more years. Um, whereas music something you can always come back to later if you want to. It's a lot easier to play in a community orchestra later on or even professionally later on. You can't really come back at 35 and decide that, oh, now I want to be an athlete. Um, so, yeah, that, that's really where that decision came down to. Partially teenage angst and partially just, yeah, acknowledgement that sport really does have a lifespan, whereas music doesn't. That makes sense, Alex. I can see I can see <laughs> a little bit of logic in, in why you went down the, the sporting path there. I'd, I'd love now to jump into some of your research. And, and this has been really an interesting area for me as I, as I have, have dived into at least one of your papers that you've published quite recently around looking at talent. It's an interesting term, to say the least, when we start talking about how we identify and select and develop talent. Definitely is. <laughs> and so, so anyone that has spent some time thinking about it deeply uh, is of interest to me. So I would love to start just by 
asking you the question of why talent like what was it about and I know you had that experience in coaching uh, mm -hmm. but but why why choose to focus a PhD on on talent I mean again to be perfectly honest because that's where the PhD scholarship was ah, okay. <laughs> so yeah I mean it's definitely a topic that I'm very interested in um I was looking back actually recently through some of my old um, assignments and things from, you know, year 12 PE and my first couple of years of university and things like that. And whenever we were asked what we wanted to do with our degree or in the future, I had always said that I wanted to work at the AIS and do talent identification. I didn't know really what that meant. It was just something that's like... I knew what it was, but I didn't really understand what it entailed at all. I had no idea what kind of study I would need to do that um, or anything like that. It was just something that fascinated me. The idea of being able to look at someone in, you know, grade nine, grade 10 and say, hey, you, you're going to be really good at this sport. You've never even heard of it before, but go try it. Um I was fortunate enough to go to a school that offered us a lot of opportunities. Um, and I grew up hearing about Sarah Carrigan. So Sarah Carrigan, for anybody who doesn't know, is um, an Australian cyclist. She won the gold medal in the road race at Athens, I believe it was, 2004. Um, and she went to my high school. She was you know, several years above me. But she had been discovered through an AIS talent search program for cycling. And before that, she'd never been on a bike before. She didn't know how to ride a bike when she got selected. And then, you know, 10, 15 years later, she's winning a gold medal at the Olympics. So that idea just really stuck with me that, yeah, you could take someone that had never had an interest in a particular sport and then based on their physical qualities, their psychological qualities could point them in the right direction to something they could be really successful in, in the future. Um, I myself was lucky enough to go through an AIS talent ID program at my school as well, back when they went around to schools and did testing on all the kids in sort of year eight, nine, 10. Um, and I actually got identified as a potential kayaker. Went along to my first kayaking session and got told, yeah, nah, but maybe rowing. Um, and at that point, I'd actually already started rowing. I'd been doing it for about a year at that point, but I was getting ready to quit because I was awful at it. Um, I would lose every single race. I'd fall out of the boat um, a lot of the time when I was out in singles. Um, I was also one of the only girls in my year level that did it. So, you know, I wasn't really having fun on that side of things. Um, but then after being told by the AIS that I might be good at, a, at rowing, that encouraged me to stick it out for another season. Um, and that was the season that everything changed. I don't know whether that was just because sort of, you know, being 14, 15, I'd sort of hit my growth spurt by that point. Everything was sort of evening out. My coordination was sort of coming back in. Um, whether it was just I needed an extra year of rowing experience for things to really click um, or whether it was something about, you know, just being told that you might actually be good at this sport, whether there was something sort of in my head that, made everything click because someone else believed in me. Um, so yeah, like being identified into that sport and then obviously going on to be fairly successful in it. Um, you know, I 
yeah, was competing at national championships by the time I was 14, um, you know, winning state titles, things like that. Um, and then obviously getting recruited with a you know, division one scholarship to the US. So obviously wasn't terrible at rowing. Um, again, the idea that someone could pick that out in 14 year old me that I could actually turn rowing into a career. I could be really successful at it when at the time I really didn't think I could have. Um, and I would have quit the sport had it not been for that one session. Um, yeah, something about that just really stuck with me. Um, and yet since then, it's been something I've been absolutely fascinated in. It is something that during my time in the US, I sort of gave up on the idea of working at the AIS and being a talent ID specialist, um, mostly because I had no idea what steps to take to get there. But then I was lucky enough that as I was finishing up my master's, um, I was looking for jobs, looking to come back home. I was a little sick of the US at that point and found an ad for a PhD studentship um, between Edith Cowan University and the Australian Institute of Sport looking at talent identification. And it just sort of felt like the stars had aligned. It was exactly what I'd wanted to do. It was coming home. It was at the AIS, which, you know, the absolute dream for any aspiring sports scientist or athlete is to go to the AIS and work there, be part of that environment. Um, so yeah, it was really just luck that that came up when it did. And I was able to go into that area of research. Um, yeah, so very roundabout way, but <laughs> got into uh, it really because that ad came up. But yeah, it was cool. Yeah, no, everything that. aligned. It's really interesting <laughs> to get some of that perspective and and to to put the pieces in, in play to you know really understand why why you are where you are now and, and what you're doing. Uh, now I'd like to get some perspective on on your ideas around talent and where we've come over the last decade or so uh, within the research and how that plays out in practice. And from my point of view, at least, we've come arguably, or at least in the research and in some practical environments, we have passed the point of bigger, faster, stronger, and we're only going to select them. I know it's still happening, uh, but a while back, you know, that research was pretty clear around talent that if we only select the bigger and the faster and the stronger kids before maturation, then we're asking for trouble. And so that was something that we considered probably eight or nine years ago. And we, we decided if we were going to do any sort of selection at younger age groups, when we at least needed some sort of matrix that would position the physical, the psychological, um, the performance side of things and a few others into some sort of context. Uh, yet your research is now quite clearly pointing out that there's real subjectivity around the selection of talent. And, and as you said in one of your uh, answers to my prompts earlier on was, you know, you're not necessarily, or an athlete isn't necessarily talented, but you are talented in the eyes of a particular coach. So I'd love for you to, to give me a little bit of your perspective on where the industry is currently at in terms of talent and, and identifying athletes. My research came about from the idea that, you know, as you said, we've done talent ID research to death, really. We know that, you know, for certain sports, there are particular body types that are more likely to be successful. We know that, you know, we need mental toughness and resilience. Um, we know all of these things. Um, 
to be honest, like from my perspective, that's a little boring to research because it's already been done. Um, so I saw that really the missing link was this idea of the coaches. Um, in my experience as a coach, the athlete, like the relationship between the coach and the athlete is incredibly important and you really can't discount that which at the moment a lot of our talent id protocols do discount that they assume that if you hand the national coach the 20 best athletes in the country that all 20 of them will develop to the best of their potential um, we assume that any coach is going to look at a group of athletes and that they're going to pick the same athletes as being talented, as having that potential. Um, but yeah, again, in my experience as a coach, even just picking, you know, high school teams and things like that, two coaches standing on the sidelines are seeing completely different things in those athletes. Um, some are just looking at physical um, aspects. Some are looking at personality traits. Some are looking at the whole package. Some are looking at older siblings and parents and seeing how they might mature in the future. Um, and going back to that idea of our own experiences shaping, um, shaping our subjectivity, those coaches base their talent identification or their selection off what they've learned in the past. So if they've learned that looking to the parents is the way to see how the athlete develops, that's the thing they look at most importantly, if they've learned that in rowing, the number one thing is being tall, they're only going to look at an athlete's height. They're not going to look at any other aspects um, of that person. So yeah, in, in my opinion, that's sort of, yeah, that, that missing link. We need to be, to be able to make sure that coaches are working with athletes, that they are able to develop, that they have the capacity to develop. To develop. There's no point handing an athlete to a coach if the athlete is very good technically in a sport and the coach is very good at teaching technique, but both the coach and the athlete lack tactical knowledge or tactical expertise, um, we really need to make sure that essentially the athlete's weaknesses are lining up with the coach's strengths. The coach is actually able to develop that athlete. Um, and a lot of it comes down to sort of the purpose of the selection, like you said, in juniors, we know that picking the biggest and strongest athletes might win us the competition, but that's not going to help us long-term for our identification and selection. It's not going to help our national teams in five or 10 years. Um, but we need to remember that coaches are also, they've got their KPIs. Um, you know, as a regional level coach, I'm not going to stay a regional level coach or get promoted to be a state level coach if I don't win my competition. So I need to decide between picking athletes for the long term, those that are going to be able to develop in the future versus those that I need to win my competition that's in three weeks or whatever it is. So I guess getting back to your original question, bit of a tangent there, um, but the idea of where we currently sit in the research, um, I see that as a really big gap is just that coach education and coach knowledge of how to use the physical, the psychological, um, whatever other information we have about those athletes. It's them learning how to use it. And also national sporting organizations, state sporting organizations, whoever they are, um, putting or allowing some level of subjectivity in these selections. In a lot of sports, it's a simple checkbox exercise. If this athlete checks all the boxes, 
they're in. There's no room for coaches to say, oh, you know, this athlete doesn't tick all the boxes, but, you know, in my experience, there's something there that I think in a few years will make them a good athlete. Um, I really feel that's what's missing at the moment. And so that's what my research is trying to demonstrate is that that's how, um, yeah, that, that's how we work. We need athletes and coaches to get along. Um, and yeah, we need to allow that subjectivity so that we can get the best out of our athletes and our coaches. Super interesting, Alex. And I'd love to understand how much thinking you've done and then, you know, how much of that information has been pushed out into the world. And in doing my research for this conversation, I read the, the latest article that you've had published, um, and that essentially showed that this subjectivity exists. Uh, you know, you get a whole bunch of, I think it was Taekwondo coaches, correct me if I'm wrong, and over a four-day period asked them to rank a number of athletes based on who had the most potential to go forth and perform at a higher level. And you quite clearly showed that there was little alignment between those coaches that did that, um, which was really, really interesting. Uh, and so my first question is, did you have an opportunity to sit down with the coaches and talk to them about what they saw? Um, yeah, so that study was actually done with judo athletes. Um, judo, but, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I knew it was uh, a, a martial arts of some A combat sport, <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, so... Basically, yes, I did get a chance to sit down with those coaches. Um, so, yes, yeah, purpose of the research we did was to try and, yeah, look at that subjectivity. We basically tested out my hypothesis that if we put a group of coaches with a group of athletes, how many of those will they select or select the same? Um, and, you know, as you said, the answer was that they don't. Um, even though we had nine coaches and 25 athletes, there was still only two athletes that by the end of the camp, they agreed on their placement as sort of top third, middle third or bottom third. So we weren't even asking them to, you know, rank them in order or anything like that. It was purely, you know, yes, talented, maybe talented or not talented at all. And they still couldn't even agree on placing athletes in those bands, which, I found absolutely fascinating. So, um, yeah, sitting down and talking to the coaches afterwards, um, it really seemed like they were all selecting based on different factors. Um, some were standing there and saying, oh, well, I looked at them. Combat sports is particularly interesting because we have the weight categories as well. So it's not always as simple as sort of who's the best in a group. It's how are they positioned within their weight category? Um, and again, talent ID can get kind of interesting in that space because how they develop really does matter. They may end up, you know, being very tall and skinny and thus in a different weight class to what you expected. Um, but sort of putting all of that aside, a lot of the coaches would identify athletes. Um, I prefer to use the term forecast because that's really what they're doing is they're taking the information they've got right now and making a prediction for the future, much like we do with the weather forecast. So these coaches would forecast an athlete based on how they thought they were going to develop or how these athletes were currently positioned within their weight class. Um, so some of the athletes that they thought weren't particularly talented tended to be the heavyweight athletes because those were the athletes that later on in their careers 
aren't necessarily going to have as many competitors, as many people to compete against within Australia. So they don't get as much experience. So internationally, they're not going to do as well. So they were sort of thinking down that path as far as their predictions and forecasts of an athlete's talent. Others were looking at skill level. They said that, all right, you know, by the time these athletes are cadet aged, so in judo, that's sort of 12, 13, 14 years of age. By the time they get to this age, they should have this checklist of skills that they're able to perform to a certain level. And if they can't, then they're never going to make it in judo. So they don't really have um, yeah, a career future there. But these athletes that have checked all those boxes, they've got a future. They might be able to go somewhere. Um, others were looking at, you know, attitude, um, personality factors. You know, we had an optional recovery session and only four of them went. Those are the four that I think are going to make it because they're willing to go the extra mile and put the extra work in um, to do the non-compulsory aspects. So, yeah, these coaches were all looking at incredibly different predictors of success. Um, we still don't really know which of those... Um, are accurate. We know all of those are important factors. Um, but yeah, it was just really fascinating to see that across nine coaches, we had nine different sets of criteria of what makes, um, yeah, what makes a future elite athlete. So I'm just listening and, and trying to take it in and, and think about some of the outcomes of these findings. And I'm sure you've taken the next step. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear where that goes. Uh, but just thinking about in my head at least, is, you know, these coaches didn't have a criteria for selection. And so it was purely based on, on what they thought was best, which is clearly a subjective way of going about it. And so one of the options could be to give them a matrix, to give them some sort of criteria to align their thinking, to say, like, these are the important things I want you to rank them. But then, you know, you've already, already explained to us that that loses the potential connection or relationship required between the coach and the athlete in order to maximize the potential moving forward. So how do you think about that balance? Have you done the research? Have you done some work in that space? Um, I mean, that's a really good question. And yeah, it's definitely the next step in my work. I haven't done it yet. That's definitely on the cards is to try and figure out exactly, yeah, how we marry up those two. Obviously in any selection case, there needs to be criteria. Um, athletes have to know what they need to do to get selected. There has to be some sort of objective oversight so that we can explain, you know, why person A got selected, but person B didn't. Um, and you're, there's always going to be issues with, you know, favoritism or potential nepotism and things like that, that we want to try and remove, which is why these criteria exist in the first place. Um, I'm definitely not saying that we need to get rid of those things. Um, my hunch at the moment is that the answer to a lot of these questions is to bring in more coaching teams. Um, so rather than having a single coach that is responsible, we have, you know, our head coach and two or three assistant coaches. So that way we have, um, now, obviously, our head coach is the one that's ultimately responsible for the athlete's performance, but the head coach is not then restricting who gets selected due to that subjectivity. You know, the head coach might say that, you know, I only want people that are already really good technically because I can teach them the tactics. That doesn't mean we then don't select people that aren't very good technically because part of his coaching team are very good at teaching 
that technique. Um, it's definitely something that we already see in a lot of the top level sports. You know, we look at Australian football teams here in Australia, we have our head coach and then we have different position coaches and, you know, coaching teams of up to 10 people. Um, I think we need to make that more commonplace across different levels, even at sort of regional levels. I feel like we need to bring in more than one coach to yeah, remove a little bit of that um, subjective bias uh, in smaller sports. So in Australia, the combat sports are very small. They don't have a lot of funding. They don't have a lot of participants and they don't have a lot of coaches. So making a point that we don't just have a head boxing coach we have our head boxing coach and our three assistant coaches that all work together in those selections in the long-term development of those athletes um, I think there's definitely a way to marry up the idea of sort of a checklist of these are the important factors I think that's important to make sure that we don't forget anything um, you know coaches can get really caught up in looking at I mean I do the same thing when I'm trying to pick a team you get really caught up in yeah their current ability level. Um, this is what I need to win my competition on the weekend. Um, yeah, these are skills that you should have learned by this level. If you haven't learned them, I don't have time to teach them to you. I've got a million other things on my plate. Um, so by being able to bring in that checklist, we make sure that coaches don't forget to look at the psychological factors. They don't forget to take account of how this athlete operates in a team environment um, or, you know, even how they respond to coaching. Um, we've all known that one athlete that just doesn't want to do anything that you say that they think they know the best. Um, sometimes it just takes a particular coaching personality to get through to that athlete. Sometimes that means that we're just not going to select that athlete because they just don't fit in with our team and what we're trying to achieve. So by combining a checklist and several coaches, I really think that's sort of going to be our sort of golden position in the middle there to allow the level of subjectivity needed to let the coaches achieve the results with the athlete um, and between, yeah, making it objective enough that we're not going to, yeah, discount people just because I don't like that person, which obviously we want to avoid that. <laughs> it's a massive challenge, isn't it? It's, do you think there's a, really level, a, a level, uh, an age or a developmental level where, this type of process should start happening. Uh, and the reason that I, I bring this question up is in your discussion, I think you talked about it, or at least some previous research had highlighted the importance of coachability and character. And that tended to be quite a, quite a good place to hang, hang your hat when you're putting a team together. And so if I was to give you an example of what that looks like, at least in my head at the moment, is... Most of these athletes that we have in a team at, say, 13, 14 years of age aren't going to go on to make the elite level. But we, know, we know the odds are very, very slim. And therefore, as a coach, putting a team together with coachable and, and individuals with character may provide an experience for the, the betterment of the team um, as opposed to the pursuit of performance or the pursuit of potential and so how do you think about sort of disentangling that idea where it's I'm selecting based on the experience now versus I'm always selecting based on who's going to get to the top 
so the first thing you mentioned was sort of what age we should start bringing this kind of thing in. I think that's very sport dependent. You know, obviously we have some sports that are early specialization, some sports that are late specialization, you know, specialization is another argument for another time. Um, but I really think that age thing is yeah, very sport dependent and very athlete dependent. I don't, I would be very hesitant to sort of put an age group on it and say, you know, sort of age 12 is when we're selecting just for fun. Age 15 is when we're selecting for coachability and age 17 is when we're selecting for performance. Um, I don't think we want to get that prescriptive with things that just gets very messy. What about for, um, the, what about for the judo kids that, that you you spent some time researching what would what would be your recommendation for that sport um it's a really good question i'm kind <laughs> of working on that at the moment trying to find again sort of that happy medium between ideal world and what's actually feasible and possible because you know like sure. in a lot of these things we can talk all day about you know what you really should be doing but you know, like I said, you know, having multiple coaches at a regional level selection is ideal, but we're really not going to be able to do that. The funding's not there. The number of coaches really aren't there. So yeah, I understand those things aren't feasible. So as far as judo, um, my research has shown that if we're talking high performance, the kids really need to be in the sport by sort of age six to eight. Um, and then when we're picking teams to start going to minor level international competitions is when we want to start bringing in the idea of picking for performance, picking for long-term potential, that kind of thing. Up until that age, um, I'm very much a believer in <laughs> selecting as many people as possible um, and yeah, trying to strike that balance between picking based on performance. Obviously, you're not going to ignore the person who won the competition. You're not going to say, all right, you won the, you know, city um, city competition, but we're not going to select you in the next level. Um, that would just be extremely disheartening. And yeah, in sports where you have a single winner, obviously we need to include those athletes. Um, but as far as sort of, yeah, those coachability aspects, I feel that's something that needs to be selected for the whole time. Um, it's not something that we can really phase in and out. Um, it's almost that modeling idea. If we start picking at a younger age and explaining to athletes, you know, all right, you have been selected, you haven't been selected as much as that second conversation sucks. Um, but this is how we're selecting is based on, yeah, this idea of coachability. What that looks like is different for each coach. And if we're going to use that as a selection criteria, I would really encourage every coach to think about what coachability means to them. Coachability in itself is not an answer. Um, are you looking for their responsiveness to feedback? Are you looking for the speed at which they make changes, how quickly they're able to learn different tasks? Um, is coachability the fact that that athlete goes and picks up all the cones at the end of training without being told? Like, what, what is coachability to you and how are you, for want of a better word, measuring that? Um, but I think that's something that needs to be selected for at every level because then otherwise we get up to sort of your under 17 selections, those kind of things. And we've either weeded out the athletes that are coachable because they um, got missed over early on before athletes that were perhaps better um, at the time, but not necessarily as coachable. Um, but yeah, I think it needs to be a priority 
that whole way through. Sorry, very long and rambling answer to get to the whole time. There is no correct age. <laughs> no, it's it's great. This is yeah. the beauty of, of the podcast <laughs> platform is you get to ramble <laughs> and, and formulate some thoughts that may not necessarily uh, you know, be complete as yet. So now that was really cool. I'm going to change tact a little bit. It's still in the, in the same sphere. And what I found really fascinating uh, reading your research was this idea of decision-making and how it may vary with time and with other conditions. So it's this idea of how human factors influence the decisions that we made. And you made a point around how some of your coaches ranked athletes differently the morning after. I th- if I if I think that was the way that it was uh, articulated in the paper, and so how much thinking did you do around that idea in terms of how does fatigue affect these decisions? How does mood affect these decisions? How does an experience that we may have had with an athlete, uh, you know, in the immediate past, affect the way that I select my team? I mean, it's something that I've definitely done a lot of thinking on. It's something that I'm hoping to follow up with in the future in my research is looking a little more in depth around sort of, yeah, like almost sleep quality and that that impact on coach decision-making, that kind of thing. Um, but as far as, yeah, sort of selection, identification, forecasting decisions, um, I did a pilot early on in my PhD where I had coaches do something very similar to what I did in the judo study. What I had the coaches do was rate the athletes, um, you know, one to 10 scale, one is very little potential in the sport, 10 is high potential, um, left that deliberately very broad for coaches to decide on what potential was for themselves, um, at least in the pilot study I did. And yeah, had them rank the athletes morning and evening. Um, What I was trying to find out was basically whether their opinions did change overnight. So do their opinions change essentially when they've had time to sleep on it Um, we all get told when we're making big decisions that we need to sleep on it we need to take take some time to think about it or even not actively think about it but just let it percolate and that kind of thing but coaches typically don't do that with a lot of their selections we always hear about you know talent id days talent selection days team selection days where the coaches come in in the morning watch athletes all day then the coaches all get together in the evening um you know, usually over a couple of drinks, something like that, and then make their decision then and there as to who is going to be on their team, squad, whatever it is. Um, Obviously, that's more common at lower levels. Higher levels tend to have a more extended selection process, but the idea is still there. We're seeing athletes in a very limited time frame and assuming that our perception of them is both the same perception we're going to have tomorrow in a month in a year. Um, and also that our perception is for want of a better word, accurate based on what we saw. Um, you know, athletes can have a bad day. Uh, coaches can have a bad day. You wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You didn't get time to have your coffee before you went to training this morning. And so you just all around cranky athletes are going to respond differently to you when you're cranky. Um, you're going to perceive them differently, all those different things. Um, so I guess what I was trying to find out is, yeah, did those perceptions change overnight? Because theoretically, if talent was objective and an athlete's talent was set, for want of a better word, 
that wouldn't change overnight. I would rank somebody as an eight before I went to sleep and an eight when I woke up again in the morning because I haven't seen them. I haven't had any interaction with them. Nothing has changed as far as my knowledge of the athlete. But what I found in the pilot and again in my, um, in my judo study was that their opinions did change overnight. We would often go from extreme rankings of an evening. So, you know, ones and twos, eights and nines to fours and fives in the morning. Um, sometimes, sometimes they go up, sometimes they go down. Um, other times, you know, we'd have someone jump from a four to a six, which, you know, yes, on a 10 point scale, that's not a whole lot, but the point still remains that's swapping from bottom half to top half of our group. Um, and yeah, if they haven't interacted with an athlete, why would that opinion change unless that subjectivity is a really important part of how we perceive athletes? It's a big challenge, again, when it comes to the human side of how we make decisions, isn't it? And these things are a great uh, place to, to, to generate awareness, um, to help coaches to at least be aware that they, they may be influenced by some of these other factors in, in, in their decision-making the 24 hours later, for example. So I'm really, I'm really, I'm pleased that you've spent some time thinking outside of, you know, the, the small box that is a specific criteria around how we select talent and, and I'm sure that you've got lots of other questions that you are that you are going to or are interested in asking uh, as your career. Yeah, um, sorry, I'll just jump in here real yeah, quick, please. just sort of on that idea of um, opinions changing. I do have some research that I'm, is currently under review that I'll just talk about very quickly. But um, similar idea, but I followed one coach for 18 months instead of following a group of coaches for a couple of days. Um, and essentially did the same thing. It wasn't daily having the coach rate the athletes, but a couple of times a month for 18 months, I had this coach rank his athletes um, in terms of, you know, again, very broad sort of, yes, has potential, might have potential, probably doesn't, and definitely not, for want of a better term. That's how I had him rank them. Um, and found that, yeah, his opinions changed really drastically over that 18 months. Um, and those changes sometimes correlated with, you know, competitions, somebody would do better or worse than expected. And so obviously that changes his perception of their long-term talent. But he also um, changed his opinion after traveling with a team, after having a week-long camp, after, um, you know, he tags along to a gym session and sees how the athletes interact with their strength and conditioning coach that then changes his perception of the athletes. Um, all those kind of things come in to yeah, create that overall perception of an athlete's potential. Um, so I just thought that was again, an interesting take. Um, as far as I know, nobody's really done longitudinal research on the coach's perception of talent. We always look at the athletes and whether, you know, oh, if you were selected in the under 14s, what are your chances of making it as an Olympian? But we haven't looked at, yeah, how those coach perceptions change and knowing that they change even, you know, night to morning, and then they change even more so over the course of a year, a year and a half. We had some athletes that started out at the beginning with this coach saying, no, nah, no hope, you know, they're only here because it's Australia. We have a very small pool of athletes. So they're kind of here by default. 
um, through to like, yep, they would change over six months, eight months to being his top potential athletes. Now that he's gotten to know them, he's worked with them a bit. He thinks they're the ones that, yeah, are really going to make it, um, you know, at the next Olympics. So, you know, in Paris and things like that. And other athletes went completely the other way. He, you know, thought the world of them. He thought that they were going to be, you know, number one of all time, best athlete Australia's ever seen, all that kind of stuff. But then found out things about them, got to know them and realized that actually, maybe not. You're really good right now, but I don't think you have what it takes to maintain that level of success. I think others are going to overtake you um, or that you're going to burn out or things like that. Um, So, yeah, again, just... That idea of identifying athletes too early can be really dangerous if a top level coach can't identify athletes properly, you know, even in his first two months, then how can we turn around and say that, all right, yeah, this regional level coach is selecting athletes. If an athlete doesn't get selected, they then quit because they feel like, you know, they're never going to make it. They're not very good. Um, But yeah, again, if that head coach can't do it, why would we think that the regional coach is sort of our be all end all, you know, arbiter of taste and talent and potential in there? Well, I look forward to that paper coming out because I'm sure that it's going to shed another shade of gray into the area of talent development. I've got, I've got I a couple. So more. if I can make it more interesting, that is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, it's, it's all about that nuance, isn't it? Which uh, makes it really interesting to, to discuss on a, in a conversation like this and really, really hard to actually apply in practice. <laughs> but uh, Alex, I've got a couple of uh, questions now to start wrapping things up. And, and the first mm-hmm. one sort of segues from our previous discussion around the athlete. What would you advise an athlete or what would be a question that you would ask a young athlete around the age of 14, just to help them to learn, to grow, to understand talent a little bit more, to give them some awareness around talent so that they have a bit of experience or perhaps a bit of a leg up when it comes to some of these things? Probably two main things there. The first one would be, are you having fun? Um, Sport is hard. It's hard work, but the hard work's all worth it if you're enjoying the sport and everything that comes with it. So there's no point, at least in my opinion, there is no point in striving to be the best in a sport if you're not having fun as part of that process. So I think that's the most important thing. Um, And then sort of my second question would be asking the athlete what they think talent is, what they think is important in their key sport and to work towards those things. They're probably going to pick things, depending on the personality of the athlete, they're going to pick things that either they're not very good at if they've got, you know, some low self-confidence they might say yep you know you need xyz to be really good in this sport and i'm not very good at xyz so i'm not going to be good at this sport that's your cue to work on those things um athletes have a really good sense of what is required to be at the top in their sport so i would just say to yeah 14 15 15 year old athlete trust your instinct, follow what you think is important, work on those things um, and don't get disheartened if you don't get picked for the under 15 squad. Okay. That coach, yeah, you probably just weren't what they were looking for at this point in time. It's not that you don't have the talent. It's not that this coach is wrong. I'm not going to go out and say that coaches are picking the wrong athletes or anything like that. It just means that for this particular selection, for this event, 
you weren't the right fit. They might have already had enough defenders. Um, yeah, you might be really good. As I said earlier, you might be really good technically, but not very good tactically. And the coach feels that they can't teach tactics. So they haven't picked you. But next year's coach might because it's going to be a different coach, different set of criteria. Um, so yeah, just kind of keep at it. And yeah, I, talent is in the eye of the beholder. So one coach doesn't see it. That doesn't mean another coach won't. Alex, my final question, and this one may be a bit of a given for you, given uh, that you're midst the PhD, but what is it that you're, or how do you think about getting better? Like, what are you doing as a, either a coach or a researcher, uh, or perhaps completely outside of the context of sport and research that you're doing currently to, to get better, to improve? I mean, something that I've embraced my whole life, and especially now that you know, I've just wrapped up my PhD, so I've actually got some time on my hands, um, is basically just broadening experiences, doing different things, whether that's a new sport or, um, yeah, just a new activity, taking a course in something that sort of vaguely interests you but isn't necessarily relevant to what you're doing right now. Um, you can get inspiration from weird and wonderful places um, and so I guess just yeah saying yes to opportunities even if they aren't strictly related to your career path um, yeah that, that's what I do to better myself and I think I think it's paid off so far thank you Alex well I'd just like to say a massive kia ora and thank you for taking the time out to have this conversation it's been really fun and I wish you all the best thank you very much it was great to be here